This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. Well, today we're kicking off a new series called Love is Hard. And, uh, you know, it's, it's about relationships. And I guess you know that, you understand that, because whether you're married or you're, or you're single or you're divorced or you're dating or you're hoping to date or you're trying really hard to date, you know, whatever, whatever your circumstance, whatever it is, I think we can all agree on one thing. Love is hard, right? No? Okay, you don't agree with me. Okay, I'm just going to preach it anyways this way because I believe it is, right? As a pastor, that's what I've discovered. One of the biggest issues that we face oftentimes in, in counseling as, we, as people are coming through our office, we get emails, we get phone calls of people who want to meet with us. And almost without exception, almost without exception, 95% of them circle around this idea of relationships, the challenges and difficulties in relationships, whether it's marriage, whether it's dating, whether it's you know, just a whole variety of different relationships. Now, the irony of this is that as big as, as relationships is for all of us, right, every one of us in this room are in some kind of relationship, whether it's marriage, whether it's friendship, whether it's parent, whether it's son, daughter, whatever, we're in some type of relationship that requires certain dynamics of how we relate to another person. The irony of this is that as big of a deal as it is for us, we get almost no training for it. It's true. In fact, I would venture off to say that most of you got more training on how to drive a car than on how to have a loving family marriage relationship. I mean... The kind of training we've gotten in relationships is equal to like handing a 15-year-old the keys to a car who's never driven before, handing him the keys and saying, hey, good luck, don't have an accident. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. That's exactly what's happening when it comes to relationships in our culture. We've not, we've not been trained, we've not, we haven't learned anything, and it's no wonder that in our culture there is just this crisis in our relationships. And so my goal for this series is to not only help some of you that might be here right now, and, you're, and maybe you would say, Pastor Rich, in fact, I came to church because I am struggling in my relationship. My, my marriage is on the rocks, or, or you know, I'm, I'm dating somebody, and I really don't want to be in that relationship, you know, whatever it might be. My goal is not only to help those my goal is also to help you have some tools and some knowledge on how to, to preempt a few things, right? To take, to take some, to, to learn a couple things before you actually enter into those relationships and engage with, with somebody else to know how to love well and how to, how to you know, like I said, be in maybe in a, in a happy marriage, in a, in a successful marriage, and that's really what this series is. The series is not just for those who are married. The series is for everybody. Like I said, whether you're dating, whether you're, you're not dating, but you're hoping to date, whatever your circumstances are, this series is for you. It's either you're learning something to help you deal with the current status of your relationship, or you're learning something to help you in your future relationship. And that's really where we're going to go over the next five weeks. But let me just tell you this. If you're here right now, and your marriage or your relationships are struggling... There is hope for you. There is hope for you. Can I say that? Because here's what I've discovered 
in all the years where people come into my office and sit down and we start talking about relationships, is that almost without exception, by the time they get to my office, almost without exception, they come almost hopeless that the marriage is going to survive or that the relationship is going to survive. I can't tell you the amount of hopelessness that exists oftentimes in relationships. And you don't have to raise your hand, you don't have to, but I bet you would agree with me on that. That maybe you're even sitting here right now and you actually feel hopeless. Maybe you're here by yourself because the person you're married to doesn't want to be in church with you. And you're feeling hopeless. There is hope for you. And the reason why is because there's hope in Jesus Christ. As we talked about last week, there is no regret, there is no mountain. There's no comeback that's too big for God. For nothing, nothing is impossible with God. And in fact, in this church, we have testimony. We have story after story of relationships that have been rescued because of the power of God. They were hopeless walking into it, but they've been rescued because there's hope in Christ. And so I'm looking forward over to the next five weeks as we talk about relationships. Today, though, my goal is to, um, I want to deal with this Huge cultural assumption that, that exists in our culture when it comes to, to relationships, marriages, happiness, and that kind of stuff. I'm going to talk about this, this huge assumption that we all have. And it's an assumption not just about relationships, it's an assumption about life that we carry. And it kind of bleeds into our relationships, it influences our relationships. And, uh, and so we're going to talk about this assumption. But before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about how assumptions work. The first thing you need to understand about assumptions is assumption affects your decisions. Every one of us in this room, we have a set of ideas, thoughts, whatever, that are informed uh, by our culture, by where we came from. And they create a certain set of assumptions that we have about life in general, how we live life, how we relate to one another. Every one of us have that. We have assumptions that affect our decisions. There's things that we do. There are things that we believe, but we don't even know why we believe them. We just do because it comes from our assumptions. Let me give you an example. For example, if I said to you, Hey, I, or some couple, I said, invited a couple. Hey, I want you to come to my house. We're gonna, I want you to come to my house for dinner on Tuesday night. You and your wife, and we're going to have a great time. And you get that message from me, and you're like, yes, great. I want to be, I want to go to Pastor Rich's house on Tuesday night. We're going to have dinner. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be awesome, right? And then Pastor Rich texts you a day later, say on Monday afternoon, and I send you a text, and I say, hey, by the way, I'm so looking forward to you coming to my house for dinner. It's going to be exciting. Guess what? Christy is making her favorite. We're going to have stewed horse for dinner. You're already laughing because you know that's like, what? Because everybody knows you don't eat horse. And yet, we don't know why we don't eat horse. In fact, there's a lot of cultures around the world where they, it's, a, it's, it's common to eat horse. In, in Italy, it's a delicacy. You go to fine restaurants and you get horse on the menu. And so if I say to you, we're going to eat horse, you're going to be like pulling your phone out. It's like, how can I get out of this? I don't want to go to Rich's house now because they're going to eat horse. I mean, in fact, I think that Rich is a leader of a cult because they're eating horse. And you don't know why you arrive at that decision. You don't, know why, you don't know why it's so appalling to you except that your assumptions are informing your beliefs. 
and your actions and the decisions you're making. So we point is we kind of like draw the line. We we like we eat cow, <laughs> but we draw the line with horse. <laughs> and you don't really know why you believe that. It's just a culturally programmed assumption that we have. Second thing about assumptions is that the assumptions are invisible to you. In, in 1992, my wife and I, we, we took a trip to Costa Rica um, with my, my I, at that time I had my oldest son and my second son. And uh, we took a trip to Costa Rica with my grandmother who was 80 years old at that time. We were going there to celebrate her 80th birthday. She's from Costa Rica. So all of her family were there. And we're going to have this big, huge 80th birthday party for, for Abuelita. And we stay with my aunt. Her name is Lidiet. We stay with Tia Lidiet at her house. I have an uncle, Tio Nasario, who's an uncle of mine that lived in another city. He's a butcher. Tio Nasario is a butcher. And, he, and he, um, he had a, we had a ready supply of all kinds of meat. But for me especially, because it had been years since I've been back to Costa Rica. It had been years since I've had Costa Rican chorizo. Chorizo, you know what chorizo is, right? There's very variations of chorizo from different countries, you know. I, it's been years since I've had Costa Rican chorizo, so I walked in the door. The first thing I said to my aunt was, do we have any chorizo? And she's like, you want some chorizo? We have a ready supply of chorizo from, from Tio Nazario. He'll give us all the chorizo we need, right? So, so uh, we started cooking chorizo every day, you know. And chorizo, you know, it's this big, long sausage, you know, that gets put in this pot and turn the fire on, and it just starts cooking away and filling up with oil, you know, just a lot of grease in it, you know. And it has a, a specific smell that starts kind of permeating the house, a smell that I like, you know. Uh, I don't know why I like it, but I like it. <laughs> and it just reminds me, it gives, gives me good memories, you know. And so after a couple of days, though, of cooking chorizo at, our, at my aunt's house, I stopped smelling it. I couldn't smell it anymore because it was just in the air. It was in the environment. It was in the atmosphere. I was constantly smelling the chorizo. What I did not know, though, at that time is that my wife was, at that point, pregnant with our third son. She, she didn't know either. We, it was just like recent news, evidently. And, um, and so the smell was just pungent for her. She'd wake up in the morning. She'd wake up in the morning, and as soon as she'd wake up... I don't know what it is, your brain, you know, you don't smell things, I guess, while you're sleeping. I don't know how that works. But anyways, as soon as she'd open her eyes, she starts smelling, which I think she was smelling all night, but maybe she just, I don't know what the deal is. There's something about that. You guys out there that know this stuff, you know better. But she would wake up in the morning and she'd take the smell and then she'd literally lean over and puke. I'm like, what's wrong? She says, and all she would say is, I can't stand that smell. <laughs> She's in the shower. She's like, I got to take a shower. It smells so bad. And she takes a whiff of the smoke, and it, I mean, of the soap, and it smells like chorizo. The soap smells like chorizo. I mean, she's like everything. There's a point where she's like, can we please stay somewhere else in a hotel? Now, you know, in Latin culture, you don't leave your aunt's house and go stay in a hotel. That is like, you've, you've, you'll never go back to that house again, you know? So, so I'm like, I can't do that. She's like, so she had to tolerate this for three weeks, you know? Poor, poor thing. You know what was happening there? The smell was all-encompassing, but it was invisible to me. But it was very visible to her. And that's really how cultural assumptions work. They're invisible to you. You don't see them. But people outside of your culture see it all the time. And so this, this assumption that I'm about to talk about, I can almost 
guarantee that you don't see it. In fact, when I say it, you're going to be like, really? Why would you even question that, Rich? It doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. And here's the, here's the cultural assumption that we have. That my relationships should equal happiness. My relationship should equal happiness. I know you're quiet, and I know what's going on. You're thinking, say, well, what? What? Of course my relationships should equal happiness. Of, what? Do you think my relationship mean I sh- that if I'm in a relationship, I should be unhappy? See, we, we don't, we push back at this. Because all of us think that if I get into a relationship with somebody else, I should be happy. It should equal happiness. In fact, that's why many of you have gotten in relationships because you first met that person and there was something that made you, there was these chemicals like this running through your brain, these happy chemicals running through your brain when you see that person and you can't help but say, I want to be with that person. And we assume, we assume that it means being happiness. And so we start to believe that the whole point of being in a relationship is to be happy. In fact, that's the overwhelming narrative of our culture. Individual happiness. The overwhelming nature, uh, narrative of our culture is that I want to be happy. I need to be happy. And may, most of us, that's invisible. We don't see that. We don't recognize it. But that's ultimately how we're feeling. But you need to understand, it wasn't always that way. There, in ancient times, and ancient cultures, what mattered was, wasn't so much the individual's happiness, but ra- rather the happiness of the, of the community, of the collective, the tribe, the clan, the family. I lived in Bangladesh, and I sat through many arranged marriages, for example. My landlord invited me to a, they call Gai Holud, where you sit down and you, and you kind of like literally negotiate with the other family. There's one family on one side of the table, this family on this side of the table, and they actually negotiate uh, the terms of this marriage between the son and the daughter. And they just met, <laughs> like, like literally just met a few minutes ago or an hour ago. And you think about that, and you're like, that is crazy. Who would do that? And that's exactly what would happen in those cultures. But not in ours. Because see, as Western civilization began to emerge, one of the things that emerged with it was this idea of individualism. The individual matters. And over time, the individual matters over the collective, Right? And so what's become now our highest value is that you deserve to be happy. You deserve to be And you deserve to be happy. It doesn't matter that what makes you happy and what makes that person happy makes the two of you really enemies of each other, but you both all deserve to be happy. And that's really the problem of our culture. It's an assumption that every one of us have that my relationships should equal happiness. And here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that happiness is a moving target, <laughs> Like you could shoot for happiness today and you hit it. And then you forget about it because now something else makes you happy down the road. It's a moving target. You're not even sure that what's going to make you happy 10 years from now is actually going to make you happy. In fact, many of you know that. How many of you bought, you went to a store, you saw something, you said to yourself, you didn't maybe use this language, but you said, I need this. And somehow getting, purchasing this item is going to make me happy. And you buy it and it makes, makes you temporarily happy. But now 
a few years later, it's kind of like stored in some, you don't even know where it is in your garage. And that thing no longer makes you happy. There's something else that you're looking for that makes you happy. You need to understand something. This is an impossible burden to put on another person. You need to be the one that makes me happy. You need to be the one that makes me happy. It's an impossible, it's unfair burden put on another person. It's too heavy to bear. And it's because your happiness is a moving target. You don't even, you're not, you're not even sure if you can pin down what makes you happy now. How can you possibly pin down what's going to make you happy 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now? So happiness is a moving target. The other problem with this idea of happiness is it's in conflict with itself. The things that make you happy, um, that, that you, you feel like make you ha- would ha- make you happy now, might be, for example, having a, a great job, Right? Having a job where you have a six-figure income and you just can't wait to, you know, really have that six-figure income. You're going to work hard and you know what it takes to get that six-figure income. It takes you working long hours and, and being dedicated to this job and, and basically selling it and everything like that. And then you meet her. Oh, man, and she's beautiful. And all these happy drugs are rushing through your brain and you just want to be with her. And so you get together, and you know, at first, you know, your job and her, they're both kind of making you happy, everything's great. Then you start having kids. And now she starts saying, hey, why are you at work so late? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm kind of, I got this job that kind of makes me happy. I know, but see, we're not happy because you're over here at work all the time, and we're not, we need you here. So now you're in conflict, in conflict with yourself because you thought this would make you happy, and you thought that would make you happy. Well, those things oftentimes are conflicting with each other. Happiness oftentimes is in conflict with, its, with itself. Another problem with this idea of happiness, this notion of happiness, is that we think that happiness is a destination to, to arrive at, Right? That if you just go in that direction, you will end up happy. If you just do that, if you go to that place, there's a place over there called happy. If I could just go there, I'll be happy. We think it's a destination. There's this uh, psychiatrist, um, Jewish psychiatrist, that prominent guy from the, from the past, uh, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl um, was, he, he was a survivor of the, of the Nazi concentration camps, um, he, he, he was arrested and put in the concentration camp. Then his, his wife, who was pregnant at the time, was also in the concentration. She did not survive. She, her, her and the child died. Her, his parents were also in the concentration camp, and they also passed away. They also didn't survive the camps. And so eventually he was, uh, he was rescued from the, from the camps, and he um, later wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in his book, it's his memoir, basically, he talks about what life in the concentration camps were like, was like. He talks about uh, things like meaning and purpose and, and, you know, and all of that kind of happiness. And this was his conclusion. He, he concluded that the people who survived, the people who were in search for happiness did not survive the camp. The people who were in search for meaning and purpose, they survived the camp. Interesting. And this is what he says. This is a quote from his book. It is the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. When you make happiness the end game, you're not, you'll never find it. You'll never find it. Because again, remember, it's a moving target. It just goes, this happy, that's happy, that makes, no, no. 
If you make happiness the end game, you'll never find it. But if you make, but if you make meaning and purposing, here's, here's the cool thing. The byproduct of purpose and meaning in life is happiness. So if you discover who you are in Christ and you start living that out, and sometimes it means sacrifice, sometimes it means pain, sometimes it means this, but at the end of the day, the byproduct is I am happy. It's because you've not searched for happiness, you've searched for meaning and, and purpose in life. And probably the most compelling problem with this notion of happiness is that happiness does not equal love. And we know that, right? You know that. Because... <laughs> You know that because once you fell in love with somebody, you were willing to do some of the things you never thought you would ever do. The things you thought that made you unhappy, now you're doing it. Like, like you know, like as a guy, I was never going to wear pink or any light, light colors, spring colors. That wasn't me until I met my wife. Suddenly I'm wearing, you know, my friends are looking at me like, dude, what happened to you? I'm like, I'm doing some crazy stuff for her, you know? <laughs> If you're a dad, you understand this very clearly, or a mom, parent, right? You take your kid to the, to the mall, you're going to have fun at the mall, you want them to ride the carousel, he's a little toddler, you're excited, you love that kid, right? And then what happens? He has this blowout diaper. And it's not just, it's not in the diaper, it's like in the diaper and outside of the diaper and everywhere else. And how happy are you? At the mall bathroom, you know, changing the thing out, you know, and trying to you're like, I hope I brought another shirt. I hope I brought some pants, you know, other pants for him to wear, you know. I mean, it doesn't make you happy that you have to change a diaper, but you do it because you love that child, right? And because you don't want to be that stinky parent, that stinky, that parent with that stinky child walking through Target, right? You just, you don't want to be that person. So here's what you, what you, what you need. Hap, happiness, as we talk about happiness, happiness is about getting Happiness is about getting. Love is about giving. The Apostle Paul talks about that in Ephesians 5. This is what he says in Ephesians 5.1. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. Not walk in the way of happiness. He said, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. And, this is what, and what does that look like? He says, and gave himself up, for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice the words that Paul is using here when he talks about love. Gave himself up, offering, sacrifice. See, that's what love is. Happiness is unwilling to do that. Oftentimes, that's in conflict with you being happy. Happy is sacrifice and, unwill- and, and, and willing to give yourself up. Those things are oftentimes in conflict with your happiness. But that's the, that's the characteristics of love. We don't want to. We don't want that because it interferes with our happiness. And I get it. I understand that, you know, when you want... It, if I said to you, don't you want to be happy? You would say, yes. And I understand that. All of us want to be happy in our relationships. We want to be happy at work. We want to be happy with our bank account. We want to be happy with a lot of things in life. And it's very appealing. But if that's your ultimate pursuit... You want to arrive at it. So I think that God, as we enter into this series, and this is kind of just an introductory, I think God, who is the author of the life that we live, has something to say about it. I think he has something to say about our relationships. I think he has something to say about how to love. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he kind of, uh, 
he kind of breaks it down a little bit further in, in Ephesians 5. He, he's talking to husbands and wives, but just so you know, he's talking to husbands and wives, but this whole passage actually applies to anybody. If you're married or not married, because you can look at it from a preemptive standpoint. You can look at it, this is what I hope to become, right? But this is what he says <clears throat> um, in Ephesians 5.21. It's kind of, he's presenting like a posture of how we are to do relationship with one another. This is our takeaway for today. He says, submit, that's not a very popular word, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, men know this word because of, you know, like... Um, a, like a guy doesn't know any verses in the Bible, but he knows Matthew, I mean, he knows Ephesians 5.22, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. We're like, we go around, hey, doesn't the Bible say you need to be submitting to me? That's, that's what we do, right? That, we know that verse. But you need to understand something. The Apostle Paul, in the, in the order that he puts it, he puts wives, submit to your husband. Prior to in verse 21, he says, we should submit to one another, that if you're a follower of Jesus and your wife is a follower of Jesus, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus and your husband's a follower of Jesus, that you need to be submitting. He's talking about mutual submission here. That that's really how relationships work. And if you're in this room, I'm a, I'm a Bible-believing person. You might be a Bible-believing person, but tell me the truth. How easy is it for you to come up to your wife and say, hey, you should be submitting to me. <laughs> Does that work? No. It doesn't work because really it's about mutual submission. It's about an environment, a posture of serving and really loving one another, right? We don't like this word. We don't like this word submit because for many of us, we kind of tense up. It it's feels oppressive. It feels controlling. We associate it with like 1950s family dynamics. But this is a powerful word of how our relationships can actually, actually survive and thrive and be examples of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a loving relationship with one another. The reason we don't like this word is because it it works against it works against our happiness, my individual happiness. In fact, my individual happiness looks a lot like selfishness sometimes. And so the apostle Paul says submit. Here's a definition of how Paul is talking about this word submit. It's a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. A voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Who wouldn't want that in a spouse? Right? Don't you want your wife to be like this? Wives, don't you want your husband to be like this? This voluntary attitude of giving, of cooperating, of, of you know, taking responsibility. Don't you want that in another person? In fact, if you're, if you're like, you're not married and you're thinking about what your future is supposed to look like and what your future husband or future wife is supposed to look like, if you find somebody with those characters, a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility and carrying a burden, normally I would tell you, hey, you need to come talk to me before you get married. If, but if you find that person, just get married. Just get married. Because you found it. That's what you want. That's what you want in your relationships is mutual submission. So here's the list. Give in. Cooperate. Assume responsibility. Carry a burden. And here's the homework. If you're married, especially, pick one of those and do it this week. Give in. Instead of 
what the normal routine is just to dig in your heels and try to figure out who's to blame and to resist and fight only have to come back and say a whole bunch of stuff you really regret saying and then have to come back and say hey I'm sorry I shouldn't have said that whatever just give in I know for some of you guys you're like what Nuh-uh, I ain't giving in how about cooperate you know I, in my office I, like I said I meet, there's a lot of people I meet with and I can't tell you the number of times almost the majority of the times that we meet about relationship dynamics Instead of cooperation, what I normally find is competition. What I normally discover and uncover, and and I don't even have to uncover. Usually it's just like evident within the first two minutes of the conversation. It's like there's a competition going on between them. Either it could be who's the worst. That's usually what it is. Who's the worst in in the marriage? You know, who's done worse things than the other, you know? And they're like competing against each other. And I usually have to pull back and say, hey, don't you know that you're, like, you should, you're in a relationship? You should be cooperating with each other. Like maybe, maybe he has a very bad fault, but shouldn't you be there trying to say, hey, let's, let's us figure out how to get out of that. Or vice versa. Cooperate. Assume responsibility. There's times I've been talking to people that I, they, I can't tell you how long it's been since they've said I'm sorry to their mate. Well, you just simply say, hey, I'm sorry. You know, I, I've, I've put us in this situation. Sometimes the ego is just so strong that they, just don't, they won't do it. You know, when you fail to say I'm sorry, it's basically you're failing to take responsibility or carry a burden. That's the homework. Can you pick one this week and figure out how you're going to do it? And I know you're sitting there saying, Rich, should you be telling me how to do my marriage or my life? My, uh, okay, maybe I shouldn't. But maybe the Holy Spirit should be is encouraging you and challenging you to step up in your relationship. Man, I, 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 I've had those moments where in my relationship with Christy, where I've like been on a roll, you know, like I'm doing it right, 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 you know. She starts giving me those eyes, you know, those those eyes. <laughs> Like, you look really sexy washing dishes <laughs> kind of eyes, you know. Those eyes, you know, and you're like, yeah, let's just keep this going, you know. Uh, and so we're like, you know, just, I'm doing all the right stuff. And then, and then this particular case, my daughter backs into my Harley and dented the, 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 the rear fender. And it's like everything I was doing up to that moment just went out the window. I turned into this raving lunatic. I'm yelling. I can't believe this. How much is this going to cost? Why did, did don't, don't, don't you have eyes? Could you not see? I mean, it's all kinds of stuff came out of me. You know, that's what happens. And the reason why is because it messed with my happiness. That somehow or another happiness was found in that item. And so here's our, our takeaway for today. And really the takeaway for this whole series, series is put love before happiness put love before happiness it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to be happy but here's what I've discovered and here's what I've been learning in my own relationships is that as I love well I find happiness it's like it's a byproduct it just happens and the longer you do it the more real it becomes so put love before happiness amen let's all stand
Our prayer teams are going to be here and kind of just speak to you from my heart a little bit. This, this is basically just kind of an introduction to the whole series. Next week, Jeff McCoy, one of our board members, is going to be talking on communication. He's awesome. You're going to love him. Great speaker. Um, but here's, here's the challenge, okay? Relationships are, is so close to our hearts. The fact that we just, we don't even have control over that. We, it's just a reality. There's some of you in this room that you've, you've suffered tremendously under a certain relationship that you might have had. There's others of you that you're, you have Google eyes. You're just dreaming about a future husband or a future wife. I have to just tell you, love is hard. Relationships are hard work. But I can promise you this. If you don't work hard at it, you will suck at it. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. You will stink at it. If you don't work hard on the relationships in your life. That means you have to, let's put that list back up. You have to cooperate. You have to give in. You have to cooperate. You have to assume responsibility. You have to carry a burden. If you can work hard on that, I promise you, down the road, you're going to say, and you're like, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy with my wife. I'm happy with my husband. I'm happy with my kids. Because this stuff is kind of built into our relationships. So I wish I had a magical word. I wish I could pray right now and everything would change for you, but it doesn't happen because it's hard work. So what I'm going to do is I want to pray for you now. Our prayer teams are here. I encourage you if you're here this morning, your marriage is in crisis, your relationships are in crisis. They'd love to pray for you. They, 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 they've come prepared to pray with you. So I encourage you to come out and pray with them. All right, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you, God. <clears throat> for what you're doing in this place. Father, you are stirring hearts. You're drawing us closer to you, Father. And you're teaching us, Lord, that that really love is preeminent. And we need to learn to love one another the way you have loved us. And we need to submit to one another and, and give ourselves over for that person. And when we do that, Father, we will discover what true love looks like true happiness looks like father i pray for each person in this room that may be struggling i pray father for their marriages i pray for their relationships i pray for those in this room that might be dating god that you will also work on their hearts and father we thank you for what you're doing already in jesus name